Sex is so intimate because what we're doing is we're opening up the most vulnerable parts of our life to someone else. We're inviting someone in as close as they could possibly ever be. And this means that we have great opportunity to serve one another in sex because we're being that close. We're being that intimate. And with that intimacy comes the opportunity to be tender and to be kind in a way that's completely unparalleled in other spheres of our marriage. And at the same time, in sex, in that vulnerability, in that intimacy, we have an unparalleled opportunity to do great harm to one another. The soft underbelly is exposed. Your spouse is vulnerable. And it can be easy, even unintentionally, to harm one another when we're in that kind of vulnerable position. So it's important that as spouses, as husbands and wives, as Christians, we commit to serve one another within the marriage bed instead of doing harm to one another. And yet, many spouses fail to serve one another sexually, and we just let it go. We see the great opportunity that comes. We see the great potential for harm. And yet often because we're afraid to say words like sex, we just don't talk about it and we let it go. One survey of 22,000 Christian women indicated that 95% of husbands say they reached a climax in most sexual encounters with their wives, while only 48% of women could say the same thing. In other words, in many Christian marriages... Spouses, especially men, are failing to serve one another sexually. And so the the main idea that I want you to take home today is that Christ, and Christ alone, sets us free from sin and shame to serve one another sexually. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Colossians 3 yet again. Uh, Jared started his talk by making like a jab at topical sermons. This will be more of a topical uh, discussion. Sorry, Jared. Uh, uh, because, because this is such an important topic. We are going to look at Colossians 3 again, and we're going to pull out some crucial principles that inform the way we uh, engage in sex and sexuality with our spouse. Um, but I don't want to confuse you. We're not going to be unpacking these verses of Colossians 3. Uh, we're going to be using them as a bit of a jumping off point. Uh, and hopefully everything that we say is biblical. I hope so. Uh, if not, please let me know later on. Um, <clears throat> but I, again, I'm praying that all of this is helpful and healing for your marriage. So specifically, I want to focus on Colossians 3, 14 and 15. Right in the middle of this passage we've been reading today. And from this verse and from the surrounding verses, I want us to see three truths about sex and marriage. And we'll close with some practical steps about how you can better serve your spouse in intimacy. So just look at Colossians three fourteen to 15. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. 
and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful, and be thankful. So three truths about sex and sexual service that I want to share with you today. The first one is that Christ creates a sexual union. In marriage, husbands and wives are brought together in an intimate, unbreakable sexual union. Look at verse 15 again. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. In one body. Now, Paul is not talking about marriage in verse 15. He was actually saying that the church is one body, that the reason that the church forgives one another, the reason the church bears with one another, the reason the church loves and serves and cares for one another is because you're one body. You're one in the same. You're on a team. You've got to do it together. But this same principle is true about marriage as well. Within marriage, husbands and wives are one body. If you look at the very first chapters of the Bible, this is one of the most clear and prominent truths about marriage on display in Genesis 1 and 2. Right after God created Adam and he was lonely and without a partner fit for him, God puts him to sleep and draws out from his ribs, creates a beautiful woman named Eve, Adam awakes from his slumber and he's amazed and his jaw drops to the floor and he praises Eve in a distinctly physical way. He says, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, you're fit for me. We're the same. And then even after that narrative, uh, the, the writer of Genesis kind of steps outside of it and gives some commentary And he says, well, this is how the first marriage started. Therefore, here's a truth for your own marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. In Genesis 2.24, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One flesh, one body, the husband and wife. Adam and Eve and every marriage since them has become one flesh. And, verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Now that verse, naked and unashamed, makes clear that this is not just a friendship, but this is a sexual union. 1 Corinthians 6 quotes this same passage to make that even more explicit, that when it says when a man sleeps with a prostitute, he's becoming one flesh with her. And so this is an intimate sexual statement that a man and a woman become one flesh. This doesn't mean that a husband and a wife lose their identity as individuals. Like some people think it's an imperative, a requirement that every Christian couple has a joint Facebook account. It's not the case. If, you, if that's your choice, that's fine. No judgment. A little bit of judgment. Uh, but that, that's fine. Uh, it doesn't mean that husbands and wives lose their identity as individuals. It means that their identities are so profoundly interconnected that it makes absolutely no sense to think about the husband without his wife or the wife without his husband. It's like trying to separate a husband and a wife is like trying to separate the blueberry from the blue. It doesn't make any sense. 
because they're one. They're the same. Sure, they're distinct. You could maybe sit around with a bunch of philosophers and think about the difference between a blueberry and a blue, uh, but it really doesn't make sense to try to separate those things in reality. So how does this invisible reality that Christ has created a sexual union in our marriages, how does it impact our sexual relationship with our spouse? Well, this is the foundation for serving one another in intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7 picks up on this same idea. This is a, a crucial passage for understanding the New Testament's teaching on sex and intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 through 4 says, Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. And so that's the command, and then he goes on and he gives a reason for it. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, a husband does not have the right over his body, but his wife does. So your body belongs to your spouse. This was radically countercultural in the days that the New Testament was, be, was being written. To say that a wife owns her husband, to say that a wife has some authority over her husband, and it's equally countercultural today. To say that a wife has authority over her husband's body, to say that a husband has authority over his wife's body. The point is that your body belongs to your spouse. So refusing to serve your spouse sexually is like breaking into someone else's house, eating all of their food, and then complaining that they didn't have enough of your favorite snack. Well, it doesn't matter. It's not your food. You don't have any right to complain about it. How dare you not serve your spouse sexually when it's not your body at play? Now, all of this comes with a very important caveat, that it is unchristlike and unacceptable to weaponize passages like this to force your spouse to have sex or to guilt your spouse into having sex. And it's, it's maybe even more despicable to, to use passages like this to justify abuse, sexual or otherwise. So if you walk away from this weekend or this point or this text or this talk thinking as your main takeaway that your spouse really needs to have sex with you more often or differently or more suited to your tastes, then you're completely missing the point. If you only hear one thing from me today, I want it to be this, that the point is not to give you permission to force your spouse to have sex or to perform sexual acts that they aren't comfortable with. The point is for you to realize that your body is not your own and for you to ask how you can serve your spouse sexually. And if your spouse is forcing you or coercing you to sexual acts that you are not comfortable with, that is abuse. And if your spouse is abusing you sexually, verbally, emotionally, or otherwise, we are here to help. Do not leave today without talking to one of us. You are not alone. You are heard. 
you are seen, you are believed, and we will help you. You are not alone. Do not believe that lie. Don't you dare believe that lie, friends. We love you. So husbands and wives are one flesh. You need to change the way that you think about marriage in order to change the way that you practice sex. When you understand that you and your spouse are one flesh, so intimately connected that you don't even make sense without the other one, the way you think about sex will change because it's no longer about what you want. It's about two people coming together in an intimate expression of a one flesh union built, designed, brought about, conceptualized, designed by God. So this is the truth, that sex is a beautiful expression of our one flesh union. But this truth, unfortunately, has to battle against so many lies in our own lives. The first point, Christ creates a sexual union. The second point, Christ cures our sexual brokenness. Within your marriage, Christ has not called you to sexual pain because of your past sin and suffering, but to sexual peace because of his redemption. Colossians 3.15, look at it again, the first half of the verse. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Christ brings us peace with God, that we are sinners and we are no longer under his just, righteous wrath because Christ bore it in our place. We're not at war with God anymore. We're not his enemies anymore. We're at peace with God. We're his friends because of Christ. Christ brings us peace with God and he also brings us peace with one another. In the context of the church, he makes us a family together to forgive and to serve one another. And in the context of marriage. He gives us, like we so beautifully heard before lunch, the ability to forgive and to be gracious with one another. And this peace that Christ gives us impacts our entire being, including our sexuality. So think again about the story of the Bible. Think back to the beginning in Genesis 1 and 2, where sex is at the very center of God's creation. Adam and Eve are naked and unashamed. And the very first moment that Adam sees his wife, he sings a song about how her body is a wonderland, how they fit together, even anatomically. Words like bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh are not an accident. It's a celebration of the way that God has designed men and women to fit together differently and distinctly and beautifully. It's a beautiful, complementary relationship. And yet, Adam and Eve's sexual relationship, while almost the climax of God's creation, was one of the first casualties of the fall. Adam and Eve's relationship was previously described as naked and unashamed, but as soon as they sinned, they realized that they were naked, is what Genesis 3 says. And and their relationship, instead of being peaceful and naked and unashamed, is suddenly filled with conflict and shame, where Adam throws his wife under the bus immediately, 
blaming her for his own sin. So we should not be surprised when we often feel shame around sex, even when it comes to our spouses, because this is how it's been since Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. That's how it is in a fallen world. But Christ serves us. He brings us peace. Christ serves us as sexual sufferers. Some of you in this room have been sinned against. You are filled with trauma and brokenness and and that breaks my heart as your friend and I hate that. And I I want you to know that I see you and I care about you, but more importantly, I want you to know that the Lord sees and the Lord cares. In Genesis 16, Abraham's handmaiden was cast away, shamed, and that shame definitely included sexual shame. It wasn't exclusively related to sex and intimacy, but she was cast away. And the Lord drew near to her in Genesis 16. And he says two things. He says, I hear your cry and I see you. And she she looks at him and says, you're the God who sees. That's who he is. He is the God who sees. So those of you who have suffered tremendously, God sees. Christ sees you. He is gently, tenderly holding you. He doesn't break us when we're bruised reeds. He doesn't put us out when we're smoldering wicks. He's gentle and tender, and he will bring justice. The wicked people who have abused some of you in this room will be held accountable. Justice will be done, and Christ is your unflinching ally. Christ serves us as sexual sufferers, and Christ serves us as sexual sinners. The thing about Adam and Eve being naked and ashamed all of a sudden is that they had good reason to be naked and ashamed. They had grossly sinned. And some of you have reason to be ashamed because you have sinned. But Christ brings peace. He gave his life to save you, even knowing how broken you are. And how do we respond to that radical forgiveness? by believing him and trusting him, first of all, by knowing that there's nothing we could ever do to please God or to earn that forgiveness, but just just walk in his favor, freely given to us. But then also to say no to sexual immorality and pornography. That's how we respond to God's grace. God's grace doesn't just save you out of your sin as if God's sweeping your sin under the cosmic rug of the universe. God's grace gets intimately involved in the mess of your life to change you, to transform you. He's not going to leave you in all of your mess because that's not what's best for you. So Colossians 3 verse 5, just a little bit above where we've been all weekend. Paul writes, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Paul's words are clear and unequivocal. They are a call to war. Put your sin to death. Don't excuse it. Don't hide it. Don't cuddle it. Don't play with it. Don't justify it. You drag it into the light and you shoot it. 
So friends, if you are watching pornography or are engaged in any kind of sexual sin presently or ongoing or even just recently, drag it into the light and shoot it. As Brian told us earlier, confess to others in this room. Confess to your spouse and most importantly, confess to the Lord and beg him for his grace to change you. And I want to make one thing very clear. If you are engaged in sexual sin, it is not your spouse's fault. It is not your spouse's fault. Do not blame your sexual sin on your spouse or on the infrequency of sex. You, we are sinners. And more sex will not cure our sinful hearts. Christ is the Savior, not sex, not your spouse. Christ is the Savior that you need. And so if you try to justify your sin by saying, well, my wife doesn't give enough to me or my husband doesn't care enough for me, that's not acceptable because Christ is the Savior, not your spouse, not pornography. So put to death what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Put it to death, friends. Don't let it control you anymore. And by God's grace, it doesn't have to. You're not alone, friends. You're not alone in any of this. So as we are sexual sinners and sexual sufferers, and we need Christ to serve us, But our spouse is also a sexual sinner and a sexual sufferer. And so we need to follow Christ's example and serve one another. That's our third point. Christ creates a sexual union. Christ cures our sexual brokenness. And Christ calls us to sexual service. As we have said over and over and over again this weekend, you are called to serve your spouse. And this call to service does not stop at the bedroom door. Look at Colossians 3.14. And above all these, put on love. And what does love do? Which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling that you kind of get in your stomach that makes you want to, like, buy flowers and stuff for your spouse. Love is not a feeling. Love is a commitment. And it's a commitment that has specific impact on your life. It's an action. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. There is nothing outside of the impact and the range and the authority of love. Nothing is outside of love. Nothing will not be impacted in your marriage by a commitment to love one another more. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony, including sex. So how do we love our spouse in bed? I want to give you four keys to serving your spouse sexually. If this is helpful to you, you can remember them with the acronym LAPS, L-A-P-S. First, sexual service is a lifestyle. It starts outside of the bedroom with a lifetime of selfless service. Neuroscientists have 
have done research on, on how human sexuality works and what they've found is that there actually is a physical turn on and a turn off in your brain. I, I read one educator who described it as like a gas pedal, turn on and a brake, turn off. A and sexual bliss within Christian marriage is more often hampered by too much turn off instead of not enough turn on. So in other words, the reason we can't get the car to go in many in nine cases out of ten is that something is slamming a foot on the brake. There's too much turn off. And, and that means that the solution is not to just kind of add more to the gas. That's just going to spin your car out and break everything. The solution is not to add candles or different massage oils or different accessories or, or activities. The solution is to start to make your spouse comfortable, to pull the foot off the brake, to eliminate some of the turn off that makes sex so difficult and painful. So if you're constantly selfish around your spouse, er, your whole presence is a foot on the brake. And on the other hand, if you're constantly serving your spouse, and oh, that foot starts to come up, let's give a little gas to this baby. That's good. Your presence is like a little tap to the gas pedal. It's just, oh, that's, that's nice. And you know, that, that makes sense, doesn't it? Nobody wants to get naked and vulnerable around somebody who's a jerk to them all the time. So it, a lot of people say that sex is like a thermometer, not a thermostat. That it can't produce heat in your marriage all the time, but it can certainly tell you when the heat is missing. It's like a thermometer, not a thermostat. So sexual service starts with a, li with a lifetime commitment. It's a lifestyle to serve your spouse sexually. To apply everything that we've talked about so far is the first step to serve your spouse constantly, to forgive your spouse graciously. That's all, the, the, that's all the front matter. That's the prerequisite to having a healthy, thriving, intimate, passionate sex life in your marriage. Sexual service is a lifestyle. Number two, sexual service is an attitude. You have to really believe that sex is not about you. So don't go into sex with the attitude that you're worried about what you're going to get. Instead, have the mindset shift and focus on what you will give. So if your first thought about sex is looking forward to what you will get, you're thinking about it wrong. Instead, plan for how to please your spouse. Because it's not about you. It's not about what you can get. It's about what you will give. So if sex is not pleasurable for your spouse, that should bother you. It should create a cognitive dissonance in your mind so that you're willing to do whatever it takes to make them feel good. Sexual service is a lifestyle. Sexual service is an attitude. And sexual service is patient. Remember, we're putting all of this under the category of love. What's the first thing that Paul says love is in 1 Corinthians 13? Love is patient. Love is patient. So it's not, some of us have this idea from like James Bond movies or something, I don't know, that it's, that it's very sexy to rush into things and be surprising and, and to be spontaneous. And the fact of the matter is many of our spouses just aren't comfortable with that. Many people don't prefer that kind of spontaneity or surprises, especially when trauma is involved. 
And so put away all of those ideals that, that something has to be spontaneous and fun and lively. And instead just think, how can I patiently love my spouse? Because if sex is not about you, it doesn't matter how quickly you get to your favorite part whatever that part is. It doesn't matter how quickly you get through whatever is your least favorite part, whatever that part is. And that's why I think the word foreplay is generally not helpful because it dismisses some of the most important and intimate moments in our marriage as a necessary roadblock that we just have to pass until we get to the good stuff. So don't dismiss it as if it's just like the local band that plays before the main event. It is the main event. The goal is not sex. The goal is intimacy. The goal is to be close to one another. The goal is to enjoy one another. So don't dismiss the parts of an intimate encounter just because they're not the climax or because they're not your favorite part. Build trust. Build intimacy. Because serving your spouse in intimacy is the goal, not sex itself. And also, Often, especially in new marriages or marriages where where you're learning to serve one another anew, we need to often pace ourselves and slow ourselves down. If you think you're going slow, go slower until you're sure that your spouse is comfortable. It means you have to budget a lot of time for sex. And that's why it's important that intimacy in our marriage doesn't just, isn't just confined to sexual encounters whenever we can have them. We should always be serving our spouse, always be cultivating intimacy, not just physically, but emotionally and spiritually as well. So sexual service is a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It's patient. And last, it's seeking pleasure. Sexual service is seeking pleasure. It is pleasure-seeking. It is hedonistic. Have you ever seen that video? This is like a, a vine from back in the day. It's like an old man hunched over a car, and he says, call an ambulance. And then somebody runs up to him, and he, the old man whips around, and he pulls out a knife, and he says, but not for me. Call an ambulance, but not for me. And it's, that's, that's how our sex life should be. Old men, real turn on, right? In sex... Seek pleasure, but not for me. Seek it for your spouse. Seek pleasure for your spouse. Your top goal in sex... (laughs) Man, there are so many times I was like, I got to cut that on. That's that's way too nerdy. Nobody's going to get that. Dude, if we start talking about vines, this thing's going to go like an hour and a half. I could talk about vines all day. The golden, that was the climax of the internet, y'all. Everything since then has just been a close attempt. All right. Reel it in, everybody. Your top goal in sex should be making your spouse feel really, really, really good. And that means if you don't know how to do it, You need to work as hard as you possibly can to learn. Understand your spouse's body. Because, I don't know if you've noticed, they have a different body than you do. And that's God's design. That we would fit together. Intimately and anatomically. There's plenty of phenomenal resources to help you do that. 
One of my favorites is a book called Intended for Pleasure. The authors are Ed Wheat and Gay Wheat. They're, they're a couple. They're married. And that's a, a Christian manual for cultivating pleasure in intimacy. And the reason we say that is so important is because you have to understand your spouse's body in order to know how to please them. You know, you wouldn't jump into a new car and not really know where the emergency brake is and not really know where the gas pedal and the brake pedal is. And some of us rush into sexual encounters and we don't even think about where the steering wheel is. So you have to understand your spouse's body in order to know how to please them. You have to understand your spouse's desires. So later on today, if you have this conversation with your spouse, I believe it could be worth the the whole weekend. Ask your spouse later on today, preferably when the kids are in bed, if you have kids. Write this down. This will change your marriage. Earth shattering. You ready? What can I do to make you feel really good in bed? And your spouse might have ideas. So we might be thinking we need to go on like some treasure hunt and read a bunch of books to figure out what our spouse likes and desires when your spouse might have ideas. And if they have ideas, if they have desires, then do your best to try those things out. And if they don't have ideas, then just seek to understand them better. So if you say, what can I do to make you feel really good in bed? And they say, you know, I don't really know, actually. Then follow it up. What do you wish I knew about your body? Tell me about yourself. And what you're doing there is you're, you're gaining information. You're also building trust and intimacy. You're showing a genuine desire to know someone intimately. And you're not going to weaponize that knowledge later on. You're only going to use it to serve them. You're only going to use it to serve them. Understand your spouse's body. Understand your spouse's desires. And understand your spouse's experience. So afterwards, review sex. Ask questions like, how did XYZ make you feel? What did I do that made you feel really good? What did I, say, what did I do or say that made you feel not so good? How can I make you more comfortable next time? And, and this is tough to talk about with your spouse because sex is so vulnerable. And as we've been instructed all weekend... You know, humility stops a conflict in its tracks, as Jared said. So hang up your pride and don't see it as an insult when your spouse gives you feedback. Instead, see it as an opportunity to learn more about your spouse and how to serve them. And and like, this is honestly like, this same thinking is why difficulty to perform sexually physically, will will impact your marriage for years. Because men especially get caught in this cycle of shame where they think like, oh man, I'm not a real man because I couldn't perform. And you just got to hang your pride up. And you've got to know that problems with sex and performance are so common. Don't let that stop you from serving your spouse. And if your spouse has that kind of problem, then be there to help them to serve them in their sexual suffering. So serve your spouse in sex. Sexual service is a lifestyle. It's an attitude. It it is patient, and it is seeking pleasure. 
And how do we seek pleasure? You understand your spouse's body. You understand your spouse's desires. You understand your spouse's experience. In closing, I want to share two final thoughts with you. The first one is that sex is for women and men. Some Christians believe that only men want to have sex and that it's just a necessary chore for women. I have five reasons, four reasons why that's not a helpful thing to say or to believe or to preach to yourself. First of all, it is factually inaccurate. Men have higher sexual desires in about half of Christian marriages. So it's inaccurate to say as a rule that only men want to have sex and that it's just a necessary chore for women. So it's factually inaccurate. Second of all, it is sexually disastrous because when women only have sex because they have to, it's not going to be a pleasurable experience for them. And and that actually means in the way that God has designed it, when, when a woman is not as engaged, the man cannot be as engaged either. It can't be as pleasurable of an experience for the man either. God's design is that we would intimately serve one another, that we would physically and emotionally and intimately and open up to one another. So it is sexually disastrous to say that only men want to have sex and it's just a necessary chore for women. Thirdly, this is theologically dangerous. Factually inaccurate, sexually disastrous, theologically dangerous. As I said earlier, many women think that I have to have sex with my husband or he's going to watch porn or have an affair or whatever. If a man is doing any of those things, it is not his wife's fault. Each man, not his wife, is responsible for his own sin. And only Christ, not sex, not his wife, can heal him, can save him. And and finally, it is ethically harmful. It stops us as men from living out God's call on our lives to be radically other-centered husbands. So men, if sex is not great for your wife, Don't take it as an insult. Take it as a challenge and do whatever you can to understand her body, understand her desires, and understand her experience and work really hard to make her feel really, really good. Invest more energy into learning how to please your wife sexually than you invest into any of your other hobbies, whether they're grilling or running or writing or gaming or whatever it is that you like to do. Invest more time to know how to serve your spouse in bed than you invest into all of those other things. So the first closing thought I want to share with you is that sex is for women and men. And the second closing thought that I want to share with you is that sex is for sinners. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes to the church, Ephesians chapter 5 is the Mount Everest of Christian marriage. Ephesians chapter 5 is one of the most important passages in all of the Bible for understanding what marriage is and how it works. And here's what it says. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. As we think about this topic sex and intimacy, as we think about marriage in general, we might feel really overwhelmed 
You might leave this weekend with a huge burden on your back to, to see the ways that you have missed the mark, to see the ways that you have failed to be a perfect spouse. But friends, none of us is a perfect spouse. We have not perfectly served our spouses in the bedroom or anywhere else in our house. We are broken, sinful people who are failing to live up to the command to love our spouses as Christ loved the church. But it is so easy for us to read that passage and make it into a guilt trip. Man, I'm not loving my spouse as Christ loved the church. And to forget that you are the church that Christ died for. Christ loves you. And he's here to serve you. He he wants to get involved in all of the intimate messiness of your marriage. Because he loves you. And he doesn't want you to stay there. It's no fun. It's not joyful. But that's what Christ invites you to. To be redeemed. To be set free. To be made holy and blameless. Because while you do have a radical call to love your spouse as Christ loved the church, I don't want you to ever forget that you are the church that Christ has loved. And if that's not you, if you're realizing today that you've never known God's grace like this, if you... If it's beyond even your wildest imaginations to know that there's a God who sees all of your messiness, even in marriage, which I don't know about you, but in my life, it's where my messiness and brokenness and sin and rebellion have been most on display. But our God sees us in all of our sin, and he chooses and he loves and he showers us with grace. We are broken, sinful people, but we are Christ's bride. He laid down his life for us, cleansing us and making us holy and blameless. So in Christ's cross and empty tomb, there is grace available for broken, sinful spouses like me and like you. So if you are wondering today, I'm not sure if I am a Christian. I'm not sure if this change has been brought in my life. I'm not sure if I have been born again. I'm not sure if Christ has loved me and gave himself for me. Then come talk to me or whoever invited you or the friend sitting next to you. Even if that friend is your spouse. Talk to them and ask them, how can I follow Christ? What does it look like to follow Christ? And I want you to know that Christ alone offers the help and the hope that we need to actually become the spouses he is calling us to be. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy, and without blemish. Let's pray together. Oh God, we thank you. We thank you that you have served us in our brokenness. Oh, we thank you that you have given us something so wonderful and enjoyable, like sex and intimacy, to enjoy with thankfulness. And God, even more than that, we thank you that your son has loved us and given himself for us. Oh God, we thank you. 
And I pray, Lord, that people would be transformed, that we would not look in the mirror of your word this weekend and, and, and nod in agreement and then walk away and forget what we look like. But I pray that you would make us hearers and doers of the word. I pray that the Christian men and women in this husband would rise up to serve one another selflessly in marriage. And I pray, God, that if there's anyone here that does not know you, even at a marriage workshop, that they would invest their weekend to to know what your word has to say about marriage, I pray that you would change hearts. And that, that if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would know you. I pray that their marriage would be transformed today because their life was transformed today, that their eternity was transformed today. God, would you show someone today that Christ loves them and gave himself up for them? Christ, you alone are the hope and the help that we need, and I pray that you would help us. It's for your name we pray. Amen.